Hi, this is Tamika Kasten-Miller, and you are listening to Think, Flow, Grow. At the end of this and every episode, you will find a meditation, so stay tuned. This is Tamika Castamiller with Ashe Yoga in Houston, Texas. Today I am thinking about addiction, addictive patterns, and yoga. When I look at how my journey has been throughout my adult life, um, there has been a push and pull between what I believe to be true about myself and what culture has told me to feel about myself. I discussed this in the previous episode. For me, there was uh, always a sense of knowing who I was, whose I was, and knowing that and being okay with the imperfection that comes along with that. I, I know that the messaging um, regarding how we should look or be um, started probably in mm, seventh grade, probably earlier, you know, when we're, we're realizing um, what it is that we look like versus what, you know, other people look like, and we start making determinations of what's good and what's bad and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think those, those determinations happen around seventh grade, which is why there's so many things that come up in seventh grade that start kind of framing, um, you know, framing our reality. Um, but with the onset of social media, I believe that these definitions and pronouncements of what is good and what's bad has, has worsened, has become far more pronounced than even before, even though we had mass media that, uh, and of course mass media have crafted, um, our identities in that, um, if you think about how, Um, If you live in a major city like New York City or L.A. or Houston, you probably have friends that don't all look like you, don't all think like you, um, who perhaps practice different religions. But if you're in a a smaller town, um, then, you know, a lot of smaller towns, everyone goes to the same church. Um, everyone or the same two churches, um, people know each other, they've all been raised similarly. And, um, and so that diversity doesn't necessarily exist. So if you can imagine how mass media, mass media frame, um, what others uh, look like and, and how others are, um, you, I'm sure you can assume that that would have a much uh, larger effect on folks that don't necessarily have uh, experiential evidence to counteract that narrative. So um, for me personally, uh, living here in Houston, which is now the most diverse city in the United States, um, if someone were to try to frame 
Islam, for example, as something that only happens in the Middle East, I would look at them like they're they're crazy because I know that Islam is is um, I, you know I personally have friends who are Asian Muslims, Hispanic Muslims, um, African Muslims. You know, there there's just no one way of what a Muslim looks like or how a Muslim acts. Some of them choose. Uh, some of my female friends choose to wear the veil. Some do not. Um, some of my male friends choose to adorn themselves in certain ways. Some of them do, you know. But there's no one way of being Muslim, just like there's no one way of being a Christian, just like there's no one way of being a Buddhist or being a, a Hindu. And, um, or, or, or Jewish, or, you know, there just, there are just many, as many ways as there are people, there are ways of practicing what people believe. And so, but, but being in Houston, I actually have that experiential evidence. Now, being an academic, I also know, right? I mean, I can say, okay, well, the largest uh, Islam popu Islamic population is actually in Indonesia. I know that because I've, I've read that. I've, I've studied, you know, religions. But, um, but I also, I don't need to be an academic in order to know that because I have that experience. And when I was a class from teacher, I remember kids also just kind of being confused about imaging that they would see in media um, that did not align with their experience, um, narratives that were being spun around um, around um, Muslims, narratives that were being spun around um, queer people or about black people, um, you know, in the school in which I taught, which um, is a hugely diverse district, um, there, you know, if you said something about black people, you could be referring to someone who was, was Afro-Latino or someone who was African-American or someone who was uh, from the continent who was African. Um, there's just, there was just no kind of clear, what, what are you, that, that's not a cut and dry way of speaking about a person just referring to black as nationality, which it's not. So I say all of that to say that um, there's a sort of privilege to having access to um, to experiences outside of my own um, that are varied and diverse. I believe that that means that I question media a lot more than, than others. Um, I believe that when you're seeing something in media that doesn't look like your experience, then um, then you question it. And so, and I think this is also true of social media. So for me, having been around full-figured women my whole life, being an African-American woman, um, I am used to blackness um, and beauty being um, a very diverse concept. There was no one way of looking at a person and defining beauty. Now, I will say that colorism is definitely a huge thing. So in the black community, for sure, um, beauty is oftentimes associated with more European features in terms of um, 
the facial structure and the hue of a person's skin. Um, and then there's the opposite is also true where you have um, blackness and beauty of black, black beauty being defined as very dark complected um, and very African features. So again, there's kind of no one way of being. And so when I have that narrative of what beauty looks like, as being white, blonde, skinny, um, that doesn't resonate with me because that is not my experience. So say all of that to say that for me, um, beauty was never synonymous with skinny. Um, beauty was synonymous with um, the way a person carried uh, one herself or herself or their self. Um, beauty was, um, it was a package. It was not something that was just so simple as just skinny, um, white blonde or skinny, tall brunette or what have you, or blue eyes versus green eyes. And, um, so when I see social media trying to spin a narrative of beauty being super thin and white and and skinny and, um, it, it doesn't resonate with me. Um, so I will say, I say all that to say that I don't believe that my, um, the way that I've observed my body and my size has been framed in that way. I will say that retail has definitely helped frame how I see my body because, Things are limited um, in terms of size and access, especially if you like looking good. You know, um, I just had a conversation the other day with someone who was saying that um, in a yoga community was saying that the the larges and extra larges weren't selling um, when they carried them. This community only carries smalls and mediums, and I said, "Well." Yeah, they weren't selling because the clothes were ugly. <laughs> it's not that there weren't large or extra large people to purchase. It was that what the skinny people in the corporate office were purchasing um, was unattractive and did not look like what was being offered in smalls and mediums. Now, one could argue, well, there are different things available. And I would say that's a lie. Um, all major yoga brands carry, except for Lululemon, um, carry larges and extra larges so that they can accommodate fuller figures. Shout out to Prana and Athleta for being my um, stores of choice for carrying beautiful clothing and um, in sizes that you know, more than half the population of women actually can fit into. Um, to that end, I absolutely denounce Lululemon for their very sizest policy. And um, even when Lululemon has sizes that I could actually fit into, they will absolutely never be my choice. So um, you heard it here first, <laughs> me giving my opinion on that. So when it comes to changes that I have wanted to make in my body, um, I would say that they were always motivated by um, access, um, access to 
being able to dance on the drill team, access to being able to buy clothes that I love and were available in my size, um, access to being comfortable in um, in an airplane seat, access to being comfortable running a, a race um, or climbing a mountain, rock climbing. Um, there are just certain things that are less comfortable when you have more size. And this is no, um, the, there's no difference when it comes to yoga. There are things that are more easily accessible when the body is, uh, has less mass than not. It doesn't mean that it can't ever happen. And of course there are beautiful, powerful yogis that are out there doing incredible, uh, who have incredible practices and that are teaching, um, how to, um, approach the postures in a way that doesn't make the yogi conform to the postures, but rather the postures conform to the yogi, which I would believe is um, the true way of practicing yoga asana or the, the, the postures. But there are some things that feel more accessible, that are more accessible, and that, um, that uh, are just more diffi difficult um, when you are a person of size. And um, I, I will frame all of this by saying I am framing everything from, from my experience as it relates to that. <clears throat> and as a, a yoga teacher trainer, I can say that it also um, is super useful for um, people who don't have that experience to be coming into conversations with people who do so that um, yoga teachers can be more, can, can make practice more accessible and more inclusive of everyone. And perhaps that's a topic for another day. So when I think about um, the, uh, the adjustments or the, the, the ways in which I've wanted to um, approach size, my body size, um, I, I think about the fact that there have been, um, I've looked at it in very um, kind of traditional ways of, well, your body needs to look like this or your body needs to look like that, which seems antithetical to the way that I have framed my reality. It hasn't been based on what other people have said or done has been based on access. And so recently um, I've made a shift in the way that I approach um, my body and that I've shifted to thinking about, well, what do I choose to access and how do I choose to access it? And are there things that I can do to create shifts in my body that make accessing those things more easy. So I was having a, a conversation with uh, a friend and I, I had this, I don't know, this kind of thought pop into my head that um, 
reminded me of like times in which I, I really wanted uh, sugar. So I really wanted sugar. Of course, like monthly, this is an occurrence, right? Because I am a woman and there are things that, that, that motivate us more certain times of the month than others. And, um, and I mean, I'm like, it's raining and it's storming and, but I, I really want chocolate right now. So I'm going to go get out in that rain or that storm and I'm going to go get that chocolate. And I thought to myself, you know, it's amazing what we will do for our, for the thing that, that for our addiction, really, it's amazing what we'll do for our addiction. Um, and what, what's crazy about it is that if we look at people who have had addictive patterns and, uh, you know, the stories are really interesting as to, you know, what people will do to engage in that addictive behavior. Um, of course, um, you know, we have, I mean, if you live in a major city, you, you know, you, you ha even if you don't, you know, especially with the, the meth um, situation going around, most of us have had some access to seeing what people will give up, what people will lose to, for an addiction. Um, I know in my family, we've had... Um, presented alcohol addiction, we have had gambling addiction, um, and, um, and, and food addiction, and they present in lots of different ways. So for example, I have a family member who had um, the gastric bypass surgery, um, and then didn't change anything about her behavior. So uh, if you look at her today, you would not know that she had the gastric by bypass surgery because the behaviors, the addictive behaviors didn't actually change. And, um, of course, there are lots of, of different ways of looking at this. I've, I've, I've seen people with shopping addictions, um, people with, um, of course, drug addictions. Um, and, you know, I've personally seen people, um, who have, um, who are codependent, uh, who have allowed those relationships to turn into very destructive relationships, but because of the codependent nature of them and because the addiction is to that person, um, or to being in a relationship are willing to suffer the consequences of, um, the damage of that relationship because that that's the addiction or that's the addictive patterning. Um, I do realize that this is not going to be a favorite podcast episode of, of people. Um, because when we're talking about addictive behaviors, which we all have, um, first of all, it's a lot easier to talk about someone else's addiction than it is our own. And then secondly, it's really hard to look into the mirror and, and, and see what is the thing to which we are addicted, especially if it is codependence, um, because, you know, that's, that's a lot harder, but re realistically, that's just uh, addiction of another type manifesting itself in a relationship. 
Um, but I am going to talk about this because I think it is important. And I think that the way that the conversation has been framed in the past is, is not always helpful. Um, in which we're just talking about, okay, this is an addiction. You have this, um, or, okay, you're fat. Therefore you have an obsession with food. Therefore you're out of control in your life. Therefore you cannot lose weight. You know, all of these kind of, this is that, and that is that, and this is why, and the end, and let me wrap it up in a bow and, and here are all of your, here are all of your problems. Now go work it out. And that's, that's simply not the case. That's not the way it works. Um, there are so many, um, addictions that don't present themselves in the same way. For example, uh, uh, an alcohol, I mean, I, uh, my father who is a recovering alcoholic, um, absolutely, you know, presented as not having an alcohol problem. Um, it wasn't until he stopped drinking that I realized that there was an alcohol problem. Um, because it was very functional, but then there are other folks that I know who are alcoholics and, um, you know, everything is a scene. Every, every, you know, everything is, is, is a scene. I'll just leave it at that. And, uh, you know, um, and of course there are people who are functioning, um, drug addicts. And when we look at drugs, you know, we commonly go to like meth, heroin, cocaine. Some people will go to marijuana, but I also look at it as the things that you go to the pharmacist to get. I mean, if there, there isn't a, there, there are drugs out there that are meant to be addictive or maybe they're not, but I think they are, um, and, you know, I, I personally know many people who, um, abuse Adderall, um, because they want to perform better, um, on this per particular day and they need to get a lot of things done. And so they'll use Adderall, um, to, in order to do that. It's, you know, in my opinion, that's the exact same behavior as someone who is using, you know, heroin to get over trauma or who is using, um, or not to get over trauma, but to, to avoid getting over it or who is using cocaine to, um, get through a long day and then using Ambient at night to finally go to sleep. I mean, there are a lot of these things that are out there and, um, and we all have something, we all have something and it is always easier to point to the other person's something because we don't want to address our something. So for the purposes of this podcast episode, I'm going to talk about my something, which is food and sugar. And the fact that, you know, um, they, they, those, those bastardized relationships were fomented at a very young age. You know, when, um, when there were changes in our household and, um, when, um, mom wasn't there to, to cook. And so it was, you know, us pulling things out of the kitchen when, um, when, you know, mom had to go back to work because mom and dad were getting divorced and we're now, you know, 
foraging for ourselves and so kids don't make the best choices and um or and then you know having a freedom later of being able to drive and get whatever i wanted and whatever i wanted was what was available which was fast food because i didn't want to cook or whatever um that quickness that um, ease in going for um, fast food became a pattern that was that was a pattern not only for myself but for my friends who were also in similar uh, situations in which our families worked and we now had vehicles and so we just chose to get whatever the, whatever we wanted which was oftentimes fast food usually fast food um, I remember. Um, going to my, my best friend from high school, going to her home and, um, and my family, we, you know, we had just gone, my mother and father had just gone through a divorce. We'd gone from riches to rags. We, we all of a sudden lived in the, the crappiest house in the neighborhood. Um, you know, we had, um, you know, the very common staples and that was about it. And so whenever I go to, um, my best friend's house, who was, um, whose family was quite well positioned and wealthy, um, at least from, from my experience, that was wealth. And, um, and we'd go over there and she would always have copious amounts of like her mother would make like, you know, nachos for us and these special cookies and would have, you know, all of these sodas in the house. And so we'd go over there and it was, it was awesome. It was like being at the ballpark or whatever, you know, because <laughs> it was, you know, we'd go over there and we'd have whatever we wanted. And so, and that was, and that was, that was wealth. And so there became this association with like, like freedom and doing whatever you wanted that was associated with all of these like really crappy foods and, um, and like poverty and disempowerment being associated with what was coming out of the cabinet. And it wasn't until much, much later. I, and by later, I mean like a, like six months ago that I realized where this, um, this relationship with, um, or this bastardized relationship with food started because I did a, a meditation that helped me figure that out. So, um, even to date when I'm like, oh, I don't know what I want to eat, then I uh, go buy something to eat. So it's, it's not necessarily that there is a, an addiction to, oh, I'm going to go. The, the, the lie of it that has been promoted by mass media is that full figured people are like, Oh, I'm going to go have four cheeseburgers and two bags of chips and a liter of Coke. And I, I'm sure those people exist, but I have, I, I don't know those people <laughs> for, for me being full figured is having uh, a slower metabolism and it is, um, it is, um, having a lot of sodium in food and having um, foods that other people have that um, handle the food better to have sugar in it and essentially have a sugar addiction. So on any given day, um, you know, if I'm not cooking the food myself, then I'm probably having um, foods that have sugar hidden somewhere because that's how food is produced now. It's, it's produced like um, products that's being pushed so that people continue to eat it, which is why uh, high fructose corn syrup is in so many things. So 
knowing that I know that whenever I do choose to have um, something that I haven't cooked, I know that I'm probably eating something that has more salt in it than what I would put in my own food. And it probably has hidden sugars in it. Um, and, um, and it could be salmon and mashed potatoes or something. Um, but it has something in it that I would not myself put in it because that's, you know, because that's how people prepare, prepare food for other people. So, and you can insert your own situation, uh, into my example, but that's my example. My example is actually not um, one that's full of a lot of horrible behaviors. It's more of one in which I just do not, um, choose to cook for myself very often. I live in a food city and I choose to have other people cook for me more often and they're not preparing the food like I would prefer the food. Um, I will say that I'm at a point now where I do not just engage in fast food. So that is definitely a win. I just think that I'm at an age in which that just, <laughs> that doesn't work for my body anymore. So the way that I'm approaching all of this and the way that I have begun to look at this is that I am an active, not only participant, but I am the, the co-creator of my situation, of my life, of my existence, of how I move about in the world. And if I pair that with the concept that I mentioned earlier of um, how and what I choose to access, then I can begin looking at changes for myself that will grant access to the person that I am becoming. And for me, that looks like being more in alignment with what I teach, um, as being my practice. So I have taught the eight limbs of yoga, um, now for a while because before uh, teaching to um, my own yogis I and other teachers, I was teaching students and we would analyze the eight limbs of yoga. They're uh, from the philosophy of Pantajali who, so it follows the tradition um, that was founded in the Ashtanga lineage. Um, and these eight limbs of yoga differ from what's in the Buddhist tradition, um, which are fewer limbs. Um, but within the eight limbs of yoga uh, in the Ashtanga lineage, um, there are essentially eight levels, if you will, of yoga. And of these eight levels, um, one of them is asana or the postures, and one of them is pranayama and the breath. So when we go to a yoga class, um, for example, we are practicing the asanas and we're practicing pranayama. Now, a lot of um, studios and social media will only focus on the asanas and pranayama. And some of them will only focus really on asana. 
We'll only focus on the postures. And of course, if we're looking at, at social media, we are only seeing asana. We're only seeing people doing handstands, headstands, um, you know, sometimes it's warrior two, although that's becoming less, vi you know, less of a thing to see. Now people don't want to do warrior two because everyone's on their hands now and going upside down. Um, dancer pose. I mean, these are very common asanas that we would see on social media. <clears throat> and, and actually with the, with, with Instagram, there's actually now um, a study that has come out that since um, social media has has become a, a, as big as it is, um, yoga teachers are actually now hurting themselves at higher rates than ever because of doing these asanas um, for the gram and um, getting pictures of, you know, advanced asana or advanced postures to attract people to their page. <clears throat> so this is becoming a, a, a big problem. But what for me is the, the bigger problem is the fact that asana is the only thing that's really the focus of social media. There really isn't a focus on pranayama or, or any of the other limbs. So, um, unless you've actually studied the eight limbs of yoga, you may not have even know, you might be listening and thinking that yoga is what we do in, uh, in a studio. Um, when we do the things, when we do the, the triangle, when we do the, when we do extended side angle, that's the yoga. And in my studio, this has become such a problem um, because people um, will often uh, leave, leave, um, or well, not in my class, but in other classes, they'll, or they'll try to leave um, before shavasana. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Shavasana is is the peak pose, and it's because of this lack of awareness of what is true yoga, or what is what is the fullness or the wholeness of yoga. So when um, we're in the eight limbs of yoga, so in identifying the eight limbs of yoga, <clears throat> and I will get to them, but asana is the third level. So what Pantajali what, what is suggesting here is that um, all of the, the first two have to be done before the third, have to be mastered before the third is even accessible. Now, in the Ashtanga lineage, we will see that, in the Ashtanga lineage, we'll see that um, this is true in the asanas as well, where there, there's a mastery over an asana before the next asana is attempted, and so on and so forth. So it makes sense that the eight limbs would follow the same patterning where there must be a mastery of the first two limbs before the third can even be approached. Now, as I mentioned, the third limb of yoga is asana or the postures. And this is what people in yoga studios or at home um, or, you know, looking at social media are doing is asanas and have no concept of what the first two limbs are. So the first two limbs of of the, of the eight are the are called the yamas and the niyamas, and the yamas are essentially ethics, and the niyamas are observances or practices, and 
my argument is that if we were to actually observe and practice the yamas and the niyamas, then though then we are not only prepared for the postures, but we are also less likely to be engaging in addictive behaviors. So the, the yamas are typically applied, like these are just ethics that like govern how we, I, I like to look at it as how we interact with the world. And of which the, they are, there are five, ahimsa, which is non-harming, satya, which is uh, truthfulness, asteya, which is non-stealing, uh, brahmacharya, which is moderation, and aparigraha, which is um, uh, generosity, essentially. And if we look at um, ahimsa, I've mentioned in several episodes now, that many people attribute non-harming to living a vegan lifestyle because we're essentially like honoring all living beings. Um, but I would also suggest that ahimsa is that we have to apply all of these concepts to ourselves. Otherwise, we're doing this external practice of of these ethics we're doing this external so i'm practicing ahimsa by not eating meat for example but i'm not practicing ahimsa when i am unkind to myself when i don't give myself compassion love when i don't give myself a break for not being perfect when i'm trying to be perfect that's not practicing ahimsa toward myself and so the practice then of kindness or ahimsa or non harming to to animals becomes this very external practice because the internal work isn't being done or with satya's truthfulness i might work on practicing speaking truth about other people but how do i speak untrue uh, this untruth about myself so demeaning myself or being uh, or or giving way giving myself giving into imposter syndrome saying that i'm not worthy of this or i'm not ready for this or i'm not um knowledgeable enough for that or the other um is that true you know there's there's a point in which yes it could possibly be true but it could also just be um it could not be I mean, one could absolutely be ready for X, Y, or Z, but not feel um, powerful or enough or confident enough to actually engage in what it is that they want. But that that is different from not being, um, not having the training or not having the information to to be able to um, be ready with the staya or non-stealing you know, uh, this is oftentimes just interpreted as stealing from other people, but actually we also um, will steal from other people's time and by ask, by being late um, or by uh, trying to occupy a person's time when they don't have that uh, and not being mindful of other people's time, that's also stealing. But we can also apply that to ourselves in that what are we stealing from ourselves? So, for example, applying this to an, um, an easy way to apply this is not giving myself time to recharge, not practicing self-care. That's stealing from myself. But also, um, if I look at this in, an, in an, uh, the framework of addiction, I'm also stealing from my livelihood, from longevity, from... Um, 
from my own, you know, from my own health by engaging, whether that be mental health or physical health, by engaging in whatever is this addictive behavior. And so again, like I could not steal from another person, but that doesn't mean that I am practicing Asteya when I steal from myself by engaging in this behavior. And then, of, and then there's brahmacharya, which is um, which is moderation, which and uh, and the original practices was uh, related to celibacy, and still is for um, renunciates. But for the the householder, um, you know, we're not necessarily practicing celibacy because you know we are in relationships or married or what have you. But this practice of moderation can still be applied. And this is where I really think that um, where the conversation around addiction can be framed in a yogic perspective. Because if we are um, practicing brahmacharya, then we will be practicing moderation. Um, and this is moderation of everything. So that means that switching an addiction from being an alcoholic to them being, you know, uh, a person who practices yoga five or six hours a day is still not practicing brahmacharya. It is still engaging in the addictive patterning. It's just that the addiction that has been chosen is one that is, that has a better result theoretically. But if we're practicing moderation in one way, we can practice moderation in all the ways. So if we're practicing moderation with our yogic practice, and uh, let's say that I, I, I love to walk and talk with my friends, and I do that three days a week, and I like to do active asana or hot yoga or vinyasa flow or something like that two days a week, then where am I getting in my yin yoga practice? Where am I getting in my restorative yoga practice? If I'm only doing all of those yang things, and I'm never doing any of the yin side of things, and I'm also not practicing some semblance of moderation. And then with a parigraha or generosity, I may be generous with other people, giving with other people, but if I'm demeaning to myself, then I'm not being generous with myself. If, I, if I'm constantly gift giving, but I'm never receiving gifts, then I'm not being generous with myself. And I'm also stealing from another person's opportunity to give to me. So this application of the yamas is is oftentimes thought of as something that is practiced outwardly, but it, for me, you know, it's like what RuPaul said: if you if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love someone else? If you can't have a personal set of ethics that governs the way that you interact with yourself, then how? Why? And and um, you know, it's so much easier to be ethical towards someone else than toward ourselves, I think. The second level or limb of yoga is, um, or the niyamas, and these are their personal practices or their observances. And this is, um, this includes saucha or cleanliness. Um, it could also be considered purity, santosha or commit contentment. Uh, tapas or austerity or discipline, uh, svadhyaya, which is self-study, and Ishvari pranida, uh, Ishvara pranidana, which is surrender. 
And um, when we look at these personal practices, it's a lot easier to see how we can apply these to ourselves because they are personal practices or observances. Um, we want to be clean. We want to be clean before we go into a studio. But also, how could we um, apply Saucha to what we put in our body? Um, on our bodies. Like for me, I can look at Saucha and, and consider, is this something that is going to purify my body? Is this something that's going to help me cleanse? Or is this something that is going to deposit a lot of things that are harder for me to actually cling out of my system, thus making Saucha more difficult? Um, is with Santosha, am I content with the way that my body looks? Um, can I be content with the way that my body looks so that whenever I do eat or whenever I do engage with whatever it is that I'm engaging in, it's not a reaction to discontent to how my body looks. And that for me is a really big area because I think that oftentimes we're actually just reacting um, instead of coming from a place of com contentment and then choosing, being an active choice. With tapas, yes, it takes a discipline. It takes such a, a discipline to, to be able to apply um, all of these concepts to ourselves, to step into whole health and wholeness and to step into a sustainable way of living and application of the, of the principles of yoga. Um, so it does take that discipline. And I truly believe that each of us is disciplined in different ways. It's just that when it comes to something that is our, the albatross in our lives or the, the one thing that is the, the problem or the, the thing that we've been hung up on since childhood, um, the same, we think that we're not disciplined around that certain situation. And so then everything is, uh, becomes a reaction um, and this kind of disordered patterning of how we then, um, you know, engage that particular uh, thing ends up being uh, problematic. So for me, if I am um, having a bad day or I'm on my period, then, and I want, I want chocolate or I want cheese, um, then I could say, oh, I have no, I have no discipline whenever I'm on my period. I will just have whatever. And as opposed to just being, um, just being okay with, you know what, sometimes when I've got cramps, I want chocolate. And that's just, the, that's just the way that it is. Um, and being, being disciplined in my contentment as well of, of me being where I am and who I am and how I am and being okay with that. Um, and also knowing that as my friend Julia would say, um, things aren't always going to be perfect. So when they're not perfect, how then can I use discipline to come back to, um, what I am practicing in, in a mindful way? And then there's uh, the self-study aspect of it, of whenever I am having uh, cravings or whenever I am acting out on whatever is my, uh, my drug of choice, my DOC, um, you know, why, when does that happen? Um, 
what is, what are the triggers that are in my life or around me that ha- that are are leading me to act in this particular way why what am i doing what happens and just studying that with compassion um swami kripalu said that uh, awareness with uh, without self-judgment is the highest form of spirituality. So coming into a place of just studying behavior without having it, having to give it a title of good or bad, but just being an, an observer to it, I think is, is hugely important. And it taps back into that, that generosity with self and that kindness with self of being able to study without having to demean a behavior or bemoan it as as good bad or horrible or lack of control or lack of discipline or whatever and it might be a lack of discipline (laughs) um and it's just something to be observed and to be studied and to make steps to to come back into a sense of discipline around it and then there's the surrender, the Ishvara Pranidana, which is the one that's hardest for me to say. Um, that's really surrender to something bigger than us. Um, in ancient practices, this would be surrender to God. In bhakti practices, surrender to God. This is surrender, surrender to that which is bigger than you. If that doesn't resonate with you, it could be just surrender to that which is bigger than this moment. So, and correlating it back to addiction, surrendering to, to something that is bigger than the moment of the addiction or the addicted um, reaction and saying there is something, there's a bigger picture than this moment, than this craving and sitting with that craving, studying that craving and moving beyond it. Um, I think is uh, a way in which we can really start to address our addictive behaviors. And of course, we have to actually admit that we have them um, before any of this really can ring true. After we have done that work of the yamas and the, and the niyamas, then we can then approach the postures without using them to then offset, quote, bad behavior. So, for example, um, we could approach the postures like, oh, I'm going to work really hard in my yoga class because I ate a big lunch, so I'm going to work off my big lunch. Well, that's that's not the point of the postures. The postures, asana is... is um, when we can, when we are in steadiness and ease, according to the Yoga Sutras, um, abiding in steadiness and ease is asana. So if we're not in steadiness and ease, and we're just kind of in this reactive behavior to a reactive mindset that has to do with, oh, I, I, I did this, therefore I need to do that. Mm, we're we're not really working on the, or maybe maybe that is how um, we can be in self study is is accessing it externally first. But I I don't believe that the asana practice is meant to offset uh, a big lunch. <laughs> I think that. It is is bigger than that. It's to sit and it's to um, experience the body and to experience 
movement, the connection between breath and movement, it's to um, find steadiness and ease. It is not to work off dinner. One could argue, well, yes, but the asanas are um, to Kriya Yoga is meant to burn off um, the karmas of the day. And yes, but does that mean that food is now a karma? I mean, is that what we're calling food? Or does that mean that drinking is a karma? Or is engaging in your addictive pattern or your addiction a reaction to a karma? So, I, I again, I don't think that, I think that we're, we're putting the, the behavior as the thing that needs to be fixed in quotation marks, but in actuality, there's something that is, um, that is eliciting or evoking that, that response through alcohol or heroin or, um, Adderall or food or, or whatever, or sex or whatever it is that is the addiction. There's something there that is evoking that. And until that is identified, until that karma, that, that piece of it is identified, then there's no amount of asana we can do to then heal that aspect. And then once we're doing all, we've done all of those things, then we can step into pranayama or that breathing to help us step into the energetic response, help start mastering the energetic response using pranayama, help start getting us um, prepared to turn inward, which is the fifth limb of yoga, pratyahara, turning inward by being able to draw the senses inward and be completely inside of ourselves and be okay with abiding in ourselves because we've done the work to be okay with that. And then we can get into uh, dharana, that concentration. We can get into the, all those meditative states, which is what we're working toward anyway. Um, we're using the asana to get us prepared for meditation and using and, and approaching meditation to get us prepared to ascend to bliss or be in the complete harmony with the universe and with the big self, with God. And so... And we're, we're using those, those tools or leveling up from through the eight limbs in order to get to that state. And I just don't believe that we can get to that state until we've done the work of the first two. So these are my um, thoughts on how we can apply the practice of the eight limbs of yoga to actually come into not only a, a healing of our relationship with with something with with which we have a bastardized relationship at the moment, um, whatever is our addiction, but then also we can actually practice the yoga in a way in which we're it's a it's it's holistic and it is connecting us back to the ancient practice of yoga and utilizing that ancient practice to come into healing and to come into uh, a bliss state, to come into community and communion with everything that is. And imagine uh, what the world would look like if, if we all did that. I will say this as, you know, my final thoughts. I think that everything in our culture would lead us to believe that that is 
not the goal. Everything in our culture is saying we need to change everything about our external selves. There is a pill to make you feel better about yourself. There is a there is a pill to help you lose weight. There is a path to help you do this. There is this, that, and the other. Um, but I, I think that it's going to take a counter-cultural um, movement to be able to say, no, no, every, all of my healing is accessible from within me. And that healing is going to come from coming into a very honest state about what that source um, that created the addiction is and, um, and what are the answers that I have within myself to actually come into healing around that and how can I practice a, a personal set of ethics and then personal practices? How can I do that to help keep me grounded in my sacred inner wisdom that will then start to change my reactive nature and then, and subsequently the, you know, will change the patterning and the behaviors that come with that. So this was a, a difficult topic for me today, um, but I felt that it was really important. And I want to offer all of this with all of my, my heart intentions. And my hope is that no one feels some sort of way about what, what I have said that has that, you know, that is taken in a way that it, that is not intended. I believe that we should, um, as a, one of, a uh, mentor used to say, I believe that we should never waste a good trigger. And so if any of this has triggered anything for you, and, and I will tell you, this is something that comes out of a, a out of a self-study regarding being triggered. So this is the, this whole episode is that is one that is coming out of my own self-study. Uh, I do not um, even pretend to know what anyone else's world, inner world is like. Um, but if, but if you do find yourself triggered by anything that I've said today, um, I would ask you to step into self-study. What is really going on with that? Why is, why, why are you having the reaction that you're having? What is really, what, what are the lies that, um, what are the lies we tell ourselves whenever we are triggered? What was actually stated? What wasn't stated? And just come back to listening to that so that we can all elevate because that is the goal. to a comfortable seat for meditation. As you find your seat, invite a longer spine and settle in. Begin noticing your natural breath. Notice the location of your breath. 
Notice if your breath is located in your chest, inviting a gentle rise and fall of your shoulders. Or is it lower? Expanding your belly out and in. And draw your breath awareness to the back of your body now. On your inhale, feel your inhale expand the back of the body all the way around to your side ribs. And as you exhale, allow for the body to come back to its natural state. Inhale now to the space in the front of your body, allowing your shoulders to rise and ribs to expand. Exhale, allow for the gentle resting of your shoulders back where they are naturally. Inhale now to expand your ribs. Feel for this expansion as you inhale wide. And as you exhale, allow for your ribs to stitch back together. Take a full inhale now, breathing into your entire lung space. Shoulders rise, ribs expand, fill for expansion across your back. And exhale, allow for everything to come back together. Take a full inhale now, sending your inhale lower in the body to your low belly. Fill low belly as your pelvic floor presses down. Exhale, your pelvic floor comes back to its natural seat. Inhale, fill your belly expand, pelvic floor presses down. Exhale, bring your exhale back to resting in your body. Take another full breath in, pelvic floor presses into your seat. Exhale, let it go. And come back now to your regular breathing. Just allowing for your inhalations and your exhalations to settle into your body without force. And begin now to draw your awareness inside. See your breath awareness coming in through your nose all the way down to the root of your spine and going back up. If it helps, give your, your breath a color here. 
And as you inhale, actually see this color, this energy coming in through your nose, trailing all the way across your throat, down your body, down your esophagus, all the way down to your pelvic floor, and then making its way back up. Now send breath awareness to the crown of your head. On your inhale, see your breath and this color that you've given it go all the way to the crown of your head, behind your eyes, and then come back out through your nostrils. And inhale again, seeing your inhalation begin at your nostrils, coming to the crown of your head, behind your eyes lingering in your throat and this time let your exhale escape your lips do that again inhale through your nostrils taking this circular breath toward the crown of your head back of your head back of your throat and escape through your lips and continue these rounds of inhalations and exhalations in the circular pattern. Bring your awareness now to your pelvic floor. Notice how the bottom of your body touches what you're sitting on. Bring your awareness to the seat. Give this awareness a color, red. And sense this a red orb or glowing ball of energy right at your pelvic floor in your root. Notice any sensations here in your root chakra and sense your root filling with air. As you inhale, allow for this red glowing orb of energy to get more vibrant. And as you exhale, allow for this orb to deepen its color. Here in your seat of grounding, acknowledge the connection between yourself and that which is supporting you. Acknowledge to yourself, I am grounded. Bring your awareness now to this space just below your navel, sacral center. Here in your low belly, envision a glowing orange orb 
glowing orange energy here at your sacral center. Space that houses your reproductive organs. And see this glowing light right in your low belly. On every inhalation, it gets bigger. And every exhalation, the color deepens. Notice any sensations here in your low belly. This is your house of creation, creativity, sensuality, sexuality. And tell yourself now, I am a sensual, creative being. Bring your awareness now above your navel center to your solar plexus, just a couple of inches above your belly button. Give this center the color yellow or gold. Inhale and see this glowing gold orb get a little bigger. And as you exhale, allow for the color to deepen. Notice any sensations here in your solar plexus. And tell yourself here, as you bring your awareness to your house of power, I rest in my own power. Journey your awareness now to your heart center. Perhaps sense your heart beating. Give your heart a color green and allow for your heart center to be a center for heart energy, not just limited to the organ. Allow for your heart energy to fill your entire chest cavity. And on your inhalation, fill your whole chest cavity with green glowing light. Sense the same color of green in the space behind your heart.
Notice the sensations here in your heart. Bring deeper awareness to your heart center. Allow for this green heart energy to deepen and get bigger. Here in your heart center, your house of love, notice any sensations of love here. Repeat to yourself now, I abide in my love for myself. Bring your awareness now to this space right at your throat. Give this space a color blue. Draw your breath into this space and sense breath here in your throat chakra. On your inhale, fill this space, giving your breath awareness the color blue. On your exhale, allow for this blue to get deeper and more vibrant. Not only is this your house of truth, but also of purification. Continue to fill up your throat center with blue energy. Repeat to yourself now, I nourish myself. Bring your awareness now to the space between your eyebrows. Here in your eyebrow center, your house of wisdom, see your third eye. Notice it open. See the color indigo here in the space right between your eyebrows, indigo third eye energy. As you inhale, sense your third eye opening. On your exhale, see your third eye get more vibrant. Envision here 
your sacred wisdom. What is your sacred wisdom telling you? And bring your awareness now to your crown center. Notice the color violet or white. Give that space that color. Sense now the connection between you and that which is bigger than you. Allow for the edges of your body to drift away and to see your entire self as light. On every exhale, allow for your light to grow bigger. On your inhale, deepen the color of your light. And on your exhale, send your light out farther away from you. Allow for yourself to step into the invitation of being in communion with all of the lights around you. Tap into this bigger wisdom, this bigger consciousness. Know that you do not have to rely on your own experiences and on your own wisdom because you are a part of a greater wisdom and a greater consciousness. Your experiences are bigger than those than you remember. Connect back to the wisdom that you've acquired through the lessons that you've learned. And come now to an awareness of a time in which you had a need that was not met. Acknowledge any feelings that come up as you explore a time in which a need was not met. And see and experience this time now.
Now place this lightened version of yourself into that scene. Seeing yourself at a time in which a need was not met. And now seeing you right now filled with light. Provide for that younger version of yourself the need that you wanted to be met in that moment and give it to yourself and assure yourself love on yourself. And allow yourself to receive that gift of completion and wholeness. Now see yourself alight with your color, embracing this younger version of yourself and bring that time and that memory into this newer version of you. And tell yourself, I am whole. I abide in freedom. Begin to draw your light back to yourself and sense the edges of your body now. Come back to the awareness of your breath and take a full breath in. Exhale everything out of your body. Become aware of yourself seated and the parts of your body which are supported by something. Lengthen your spine and take a full breath in and a delicious exhale. Do that again, full breath in. And an even longer breath out. Begin to blink open your eyes, wiggle your fingers and your toes. And I invite you to abide in the knowledge that you have wholeness within you. You have balance within you. You have the abilities to supply your needs. And that those things that are outside of you are not necessary to supply your heart's needs. 
you are complete. On your ready, welcome the invitation to step into a complete and whole version of yourself. And know that at any time you can come back to this meditation and come back into the centered wholeness that you sense right now. It is always my goal to leave you better than I found you. I hope that happened for you today. Namaste. You've been listening to Think, Flow, Grow. This is Tamika with Asha Yoga. I'd love to hear your feedback and would love to hear any topics that you'd like for me to address. Feel free to email me at tamika at ashayoga.com. Also, you can go to that website to find out upcoming workshops, retreats, and events in your area.